Amen. Inscribed on the facade of the main building at the University of Texas is the phrase, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Whenever you enter the campus library, you walk under those words. The implication is that the University of Texas holds the truths that set us free. UT stole those words from Jesus. For it's not man's truths that free us. It's the truth that Jesus spoke. It's his view of life and of God and of man that sets us free. Jesus' full quote is found in John chapter 8, verse 31, which is where we begin today. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth that sets us free is found not in a university library. In fact, many of the students who enter that library are in bondage to a vice, whether it's sex or booze or pride, academic pride. No, the truth that sets us free is found in Jesus. He says, if you abide in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. His truth answers the big questions we ask. It absolves our doubts. It demolishes our fears. Understand the world's deception is what enslaves people. You know, folks succumb to slavery, all kinds of slavery, especially slavery to sin when they believe that they have no other alternative. Lies are the chains of bondage. But Jesus is the truth. His word frees us from deception and coercion and confusion and condemnation. And notice the key in knowing his truth. We're told, if you abide in my word, this idea abide, it means to trust or to rest. Here's a helpful word picture. Lying in a hammock isn't like sitting on a stool. On a stool, you take a sit, but you can still jump into action. You're still in control. But when you lie down in a hammock, you lose control. In the hammock, the weight is off your feet. Your body is swallowed up in the hammock. Think of the words of Jesus as our hammock. We need to rest in his statements, relax in his promises, Really allow him to bear the weight of our troubles. Let faith in his word take control of your life. Real disciples abide in Jesus and in his word. Now recall, Jesus is teaching in the Jewish temple and his audience is twofold. His own disciples have been listening to him and the Jews have been listening in. Now the Jews, they have some questions for him. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone, how can you say you will be made free? Oh, suddenly, nationalistic pride begins to swell up in the hearts of these Jews. We're Abraham's kids. In essence, they're saying, you can't free us, for we've never been slaves. Now, how in the world could they say that? What about the 400 years that they spent in bondage in Egypt? Or the 600 years prior to this, When Babylon sacked Jerusalem and took the Jews captive to Babel, they were in bondage there for 70 years. And since then, 
Israel had been a province of first Persia, then later Greece. Even as this conversation takes place, there is a battalion of Roman troops occupying a fortress on the Temple Mount just a few yards from where they stood. In other words, for the last six centuries, Israel had been a political puppet at best. They were now slaves to their own pride. For Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And here Jesus exposes their real bondage. It's a spiritual slavery. And it still exists. I'm sure you've heard, stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Spiritual prison cells are made of faithlessness and fear and tainted perspectives and worry and foolishness and deception and disobedience and pride. You know, realize each time you give in to sin, it's harder to say no the next time. You weaken your resistance until you end up with the backbone of a jellyfish. These Jews were slaves to their own weaknesses and to their own sin. Prisons of the soul are created when we believe and act on lies. Again, it's the truth. It's the truth about me and you and God and life that sets us free. When a man sees the truth that in Christ there's forgiveness and there's victory over sin, that positions him to experience true freedom. When Jesus adds, verse 35, And a slave does not abide in the house forever, for, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. A slave will never obtain family status and permanent residence in the master's house. Only a son is family, come what may. And that's why only Jesus, God's son, can give us real assurance. Thus, if you're in Christ, God treats you as he does his own son, Jesus, That's real freedom. If the Son makes you free, then you are free indeed. And then Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Now, Jesus is saying here there's a difference between pedigree and parentage. You can have a person's DNA, but that doesn't mean that you were nurtured by that person. And this was true of the Jews. They had Abraham's DNA. But after that, the resemblance to him ceased. They certainly didn't have his faith or his insights. In fact, Jesus tells them, you do the deeds of your father. And he was about to identify the father who had raised them when all of a sudden they get in an ugly dig. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. The Jews had obviously heard of Mary's claims of a miraculous conception of the virgin birth, but they didn't believe her. And here they cast 
aspersions on the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. This was an ugly insult. I mean, this is really tacky for a group of distinguished priests to resort to denigrating a person's own mother. That's what they do. Well, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And recall, this was the claim to deity that Jesus often used. See, human beings, they don't come from anywhere. Human beings don't exist prior to our conception. No other human had come from God, but Jesus had preexisted before his birth. His origins were divine. He says, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And here Jesus is about to drop the mic. See, the Jews have a father, all right, and Jesus tells them, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Jesus had known the devil firsthand. He had been dealing with him for a long, long time. And above all else, Jesus knew that Satan is a murderer. You know, life is God's gift. You and I were made in the image and in the likeness of God. Thus, to murder another human is to mar God's image. Murder is an attack on God and man. And Satan was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. You know, the first homicide wasn't when Cain killed Abel. It was earlier when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. You remember they sinned and they died spiritually and the murder weapon was a lie. The devil promised that they could be like God. You won't surely die, he told them, but they did so in the worst way. And then he continues speaking of Satan in verse 44. He says, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. In the Hebrew language, the phrase the father of means the originator of Satan was the first person to think of twisting the truth. You know, the devil's never played by the rules. His temptations are potent because they contain elements of truth laced with lies. He's the master of half-truths. The devil is a liar and a murderer. And the Jews were acting just like him, Jesus tells them. During the feast, they had entertained fake news about Jesus, and they had even plotted to kill him. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jewish leaders were so used to lying that they didn't recognize the truth that Jesus spoke. He continues, which of you convicts me of sin? The answer was no one. And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? See, Jesus is pointing out the contradiction. They couldn't deny him, but they wouldn't believe him. Now, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, and now they just throw out ugly, ugly things, insults. Do we not rightly, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, earlier they had tried to discredit Jesus by insulting his mother. Now they resort to racial slurs and blasphemy. 
See, the Samaritans were an interracial people. They were a mix of Jewish and Gentile blood. And the term Samaritan was an insult to a common Jew. They called him a Samaritan. They also accused God's son of having a demon. This was preposterous. This passed the pale. Then verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Jesus responds to their insults with a bold claim. The truth is that he is God, for he assumes the right to grant eternal life. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. You only say that if you're God. You know, by the end of the day, not everyone will believe in Jesus, but no one will be confused about his claims. And then he says in verse 52, Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead in the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Now remember, the Jews revered Abraham and the prophets. They revered them just below the angels. Abraham was called a friend of God. He was the father of their faith. And yet both Abraham and the prophets were dead. How then can Jesus grant eternal life? For him to do so, it would mean that he's greater than Abraham. Well, the Jews ask, Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And here Jesus drops the ultimate bombshell. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and how have you seen Abraham? At this time, Jesus was probably in his mid to late 30s. He certainly wasn't 50. And yet Jesus says that he saw Abraham, a man who lived 2,000 years before him. How in the world could that be? And yet astute Old Testament students will realize that God's son appeared to Abraham several times in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 18, three mysterious visitors, they come to Abraham's tent. And when you read the text carefully, you see that one of the men speaks of God in the first person. Clearly, it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's also possible that the high priest Melchizedek was a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Son of God, of Jesus. Yes, Abraham did see Jesus. And if Jesus' previous statements were bombshells, here he drops the nuke. For if Jesus had been living in the days of Twitter, verse 58 would have exploded to Twitterverse. For Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am.
See, this was the name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here Jesus quotes the holy, revered name of God, I am, and he applies it to himself. Jesus is removing all doubt about his deity. He's being crystal clear. Jesus is identifying himself as the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And this was more than these narrow-minded Jews could bear. They knew exactly what Jesus had said. This is why they instantly go into assassination mode. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And I believe this too was a miracle. Jesus walked right through a mob of bloodthirsty men. God must have supplied him with some kind of supernatural shield. As a side note, John records seven of Jesus' I am statements in his gospel. In chapter 6, verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In John 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. In chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. Jesus was the great I am. God himself. Now, I'll never forget today, my son Zach was about 12 years old. And he asked me to hold his glasses. And just for kicks, just just out of curiosity, just for kicks, I took Zach's glasses and I put them over my head and I just kind of slid them over my eyes. And surprise, surprise, I could see. I mean, the whole world looked sharper. For the first time, I realized that I might need glasses. Well, a month later, the eye exam confirmed it. And I can recall saying to the optometrist, Doc, this just can't be. I've always had 20-20 vision. What's going on here? And the answer was so depressing. You know, Sandy, when you get older, your eyes start to deteriorate. Who's getting older? But we all do, don't we? And when we do, our eyes begin to dim. Some people even go blind. It's tough to accept. Yet in chapter 9, we find a man who had no problem accepting his blindness. For his eyes had never seen. Chapter 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Did you know that every 20 minutes, someone in the U.S. goes blind? Every 20 minutes. You know, it's a terrible tragedy to lose your sight. There's only one thing worse, and that's to have never had the opportunity to see in the first place. Imagine being born blind. You live your whole life having never seen a sunset or never seen an azalea bloom, or a dogwood tree blossom, 
or the smile on a giggly child. A man born blind has no reference point. He has no recollection to draw on. He has no paints or brushes of color in the pictures on the canvas of his imagination. His mental images all look alike, gray and empty and blank. Such was this blind man's sad lot in life. Notice verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what a contrast in perspective here. As we'll see later, Jesus looked at this man and thought of alleviating his suffering, whereas his disciples see him and think of affixing blame. Jesus asked, how can I help? His disciples asked, who can we condemn? I wonder if you're like Jesus and you look for ways to help or if you're like the disciples and only focus on who's to blame. But the disciples were really only reflecting the current understanding of disease and suffering among the Jews at the time. For the Jewish rabbis believed that every illness or natural disaster was caused by some specific sin. That sin and suffering supposedly had a cause and effect relationship. That tornadoes touch down on the evil people. That cancer strikes the carnal. That heart attacks happen to the heathen. That forest fires destroy the faithless, etc., etc. One Jewish rabbi commented, There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. Other rabbis went so far as to teach that a child could sin in utero and be punished with a deformity. How cruel is that? Other Jewish rabbis were even crueler. They asserted that if a child was born with a disorder, it had to be the result of their parents' sin. Imagine the enormous guilt this showered on parents whose children had problems. Jesus' disciples were merely echoing the erroneous theological theories of their day. Notice in verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. See, Jesus shoots down the theology of the rabbis. That birth defects and incurable diseases and natural disasters can't always be pinned to a specific sin. They may not be due to any particular sin at all. You see, when sin entered our world, the whole created order became subject to randomness and futility. Theologians call it the fall. Even today, Mother Nature doesn't always work in sync with the will of Father God. And suffering is now the fallout of the fall. Every pain isn't necessarily sent by God, but God has no qualms about taking our suffering and using it for his glory. Author Frank Anderson, he has a great insight on this story here in John 9. He writes, The Bible explains suffering not so much in origins as in goals. The purpose of pain is seen not in its cause, but in its results. The man was born blind, so God's work could be displayed in him. The disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? In essence, the Lord answers them, well, it doesn't matter why he was born blind. What counts is how God will use 
his situation to bring himself glory. God allowed this man to be born blind so the people in the temple this day and people in all the ages since might behold the wonders of his beloved son. Here a man born blind is about to encounter a man who can turn on the lights. A sensational miracle will occur and a spiritual message will follow. Well, verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And you know, one of the marks of Jesus' ministry was his sense of urgency. As the sun rises and the day starts, as the sun sets and the day ends, God's plans also have a beginning and they have an end. And when the sun goes down on the very last day, understand that all that are not saved will never be saved. This should put some urgency in our hearts. This is why, like Jesus, we need to be busy doing the works that God has called us to do. George Mueller once wrote, When the day of recompense comes, our only regret will be that we have done so little for him, not that we have done so much. Hey, it's day now, but trust me, the nighttime is coming. When Jesus' words in verse 5, they stir up the faith of this blind man. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, and he made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Here's one mud-slinging campaign that had a happy ending. And Jesus said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. For all the miracles proved that Jesus had been sent by God. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. It was a miracle. The man born blind now has 20-20 vision. And understand, the spit was not it. Hey, in Mark chapter 10, you remember Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus by just speaking the word. He healed blind eyes in other, on other occasions with different methods. It wasn't the spit. It was the power of God that opened the man's eyes. The spit was not it, but the spit played a role. You know, the ancients believed that human saliva had medicinal properties. Perhaps Jesus used the mud pack, something tangible, to sort of stir up this man's faith. Likewise, you remember in the book of Acts, it wasn't Paul's handkerchiefs or Peter's shadow that healed, but they were used by God to stir up a sluggish faith. Well, verse 8 tells us, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And throughout chapter 9, you'll notice that everyone is concerned with how this miracle took place. This is always the case. We're intrigued with the miracle's mechanics. But God is more interested in the miracle's message. You know, if you could figure out how the miracle occurred, it wouldn't be a miracle. The point of the miracle is who, not how. Have you noticed that how and who are the same three letters? But in God's eyes, who 
is always more important than how. Well, the fellow answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then verse 12, Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, as we move through chapter 9, I want you to notice the progression in this man's relationship with Jesus. In verse 11, he calls Jesus a man. In verse 17, the healed man refers to Jesus as a prophet. In verse 33, the blind man healed calls Jesus a man from God. But in verse 38, Jesus is called Lord in this man falls at his feet and worships Jesus. Verse 13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. No, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And of course it was. Jesus was always healing on the Sabbath day. Why? Because he just wanted to get under the skin of the little people. Irritate the legalists. Jesus relished the confrontation. Nothing did more to highlight Jesus's, God's compassion, Jesus' compassion on people and the Jews' callousness than his healings on the Sabbath day. Well, then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, well, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And it's always amazing how picky, how petty the legalist can be. The rules grow so large in his mind, that's all he can see. You know, man-made rules can cloud out the love of God, the power of God, the wonders of God. These Jews were so prejudiced, so narrow-minded that they looked past an obvious miracle and all they could focus on was a technicality. When it's obvious that God is at work, there comes a time when you need to start questioning your technicalities. Verse 16 ends. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. Apparently, some of the Jews had started to see spiritually as this man was seeing physically. Well, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. They questioned the very miracle that it even happened until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. Now his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ or Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. Rather than testify of Jesus and show some gratitude for him healing their son, These parents, they take the fifth. They pass the buck. Oh, our son's a grown man. Let him speak for himself. And they pass the buck because they feared the Jews. 
And yet their reaction really shouldn't be a shock. I mean, after all, they'd left their own son on the street to beg for a living. They cared more about their social standing than they did the boy they had brought into the world. Oh, heaven forbid. We don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. We don't want to lose our friends. Just throw our son under the bus. That was their attitude. Though this man's blindness wasn't the result of his parents' sin, let me suggest there are many of our young people today, they're blind spiritually because they have a mother and father that are just as pathetic as these parents. Parents, do you care more about your image than you do what Jesus wants to work in the life of your child? You care more about your image than you do the work that Jesus wants to accomplish in your children? Well, back to the trial, verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, deny Jesus. Tell us what we want to hear. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Isn't that beautiful? I love the old quote, A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. The work of God in a person's life speaks much louder than the skepticism of the folks around them. Then verse 26, then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) don't you love his tongue-in-cheek do you want to be his followers too is that why you're so interested in him the formerly blind man mocks the jews must have infuriated them for then they reviled him and said you are his disciple but we are moses's disciples you know if the jews had been smart they would have stopped arguing with this guy i mean a half hour earlier he was blind as a bat This man sees. I mean, if they want to discredit Jesus, this miracle, they shouldn't be talking to this man. I mean, he's walking proof. They're about to reveal their own blindness. They argue, we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, wow, this is a marvelous thing. In other words, you guys got to be kidding that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes? I mean, any man that gives sight to the blind has to be from God. You're kidding me. You don't know where he's from? He's from God. This man is about to give the theologians a lesson in some practical theology. Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. That is, God isn't obligated to hear sinners, and he's not. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. God's more inclined to hear a believer. These are true generalizations. But the man continues, Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This is an unprecedented miracle we're dealing with. Thus, if this man were not from God, He could do nothing. And the man's logic is overwhelming. His healing 
was what was a miracle that only God himself could perform. Should be obvious. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. You know, they they couldn't debate him. They they couldn't argue with him. And so they just cancel him. Sound familiar? Man, they didn't like the message. And so they canceled what was said and they threw out the messenger. How pompous and blind they had become. Bible scholar Alfred Edersheim, he explains that the rabbinical Jews, they had three kinds of excommunication. First was the simple rebuke. It lasted seven days. It was a probationary move, sort of a mild form of discipline. Second was an admonition. The guilty person was ostracized from the synagogue for 30 days or for a month. For that time, they were treated as an outcast and sinner. Finally, the most radical excommunication was when the unrepentant person was cast out or literally unsynagogued. He was permanently alienated from the community of Israel for an indefinite period of time. No one was allowed to speak with him or eat with him. With the person who was excommunicated, the person was considered dead. You know, it's interesting that these Pharisees, they had three interviews with this man who was healed. Verses 13 to 16 ends with a simple rebuke. Verses 17 to 23 involved his parents who were afraid of excommunication. And then verses 24 through 34, they tossed the man out for good. You know, it could be they ran him through all three phases of their excommunication that particular day. It's sad, though, that one of the very first sights this man's eyes ever saw were the venomous looks of the scrunched-up faces of these angry and closed-minded Pharisees. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God. And you got to love this. As soon as Jesus heard he was cast out, Jesus sought to take him in. He searched for the man and he found him. And this is why chapter 9 is such a harbinger of things to come. See, a man is cast out of Judaism, but he is welcomed in by Jesus. And this man would be the first of many more to follow. For after Jesus' resurrection, folks leave Judaism by the droves to become members of his church. Legalism blinds everyone living under it. But when Jesus opens our eyes, we can see. The blind continue to receive sight. Jesus had asked him, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? The man wants to believe. Verse 37 And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. See, the first time he met Jesus, he had heard his voice, but he didn't actually see him. Now he's looking into the face of Jesus, proof of this miracle. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You know, remember the Jews detested idolatry. By the first century, they had been cured of their idolatrous tendencies that had brought on God's judgment in the Old Testament. At the time of Jesus, they worshiped no one but Yahweh. But this man, 
knew that he had found God in Jesus and he worships him and understand Jesus does nothing to stop him. You remember back in Acts chapter 14 after Paul heals the lame man in Lystra, the people of the town, they, they want to worship him and Barnabas, but Paul shuts it down. Hey, we're just men. Don't worship us. Paul and Barnabas weren't worthy of worship. Jesus, on the other hand, allowed people to worship him. He encouraged it. Why? Because he was God. Verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. I like the comment made by author Philip Yancey. He writes, What began as a tragic tale of one man's blindness ends as a surreal tale of everyone else's blindness. Heard the story of a newspaper man who once wrote a story about three little girls outside a toy store. One of the girls was blind. And so the other two girls were trying to describe to her toys that she had never seen. And of course, this was futile. Yet the journalist was touched by the scene. It became the subject of that day's column in the newspaper. That night, this same reporter planned to visit the D.L. Moody crusade that was in town. He was a skeptic toward Christianity, and he intended to pick the evangelist apart, write a scathing editorial against him. But during his message, Moody referred to the reporter's own words that day in his column to describe his job as a pastor. And he talked about how difficult it was to explain the glories of Jesus to men who were spiritually blind. Again, this newspaper man was so moved with emotion, he realized that he had been blind. And he came forward that night at the invitation to receive Christ. You know, today, Jesus is giving us the same invitation. If you think that you can see, you'll remain blind. But if you realize that you're blind to God and the things of God, then suddenly he'll enable you to see. Verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. The Pharisees were blind because they assumed they saw the truth clearly. Pride always causes spiritual blindness. The know-it-all is the person who's most ignorant. It's only when we admit that our vision is impaired that we need God's help. It's only then that he puts the mud packs on our eyes and helps us see. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray for all of us here today, Lord, I pray that you would help us see, Lord, that we would be honest and that we would admit our spiritual blindness, Lord, that we don't always see life clearly, that so often we see things from a selfish perspective and that we don't see your purposes. Lord, forgive us. Help us to humble ourselves, Lord. Open our eyes to your concerns, to the way you see life. Help us to see life through your eyes. Lord, give us all spiritually open eyes. We love you, Lord. We ask you to work in our hearts today.
Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.